Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. Thank you to those men that um, filled in for me on my uh, vacation. I have an excess of excitement (laughs) this morning. If you hadn't had your coffee, I'll make up for it. That last song, what a powerful song. I love that song. Well, I wanted to entitle this morning's message, Overlords of Gibberish, but I felt that was too restrictive. So the title to this morning's message is Anticipating Objections. It's a little bit more less exciting, but it's actually what's going on. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3. And we will stand and take verses 3 and 4. And so would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome When you are judged. Please be seated. He's actually quoting this from the psalm we just were singing from, Psalm 51. Well, he's anticipating objections to his remarks that we have been covering in chapters 1 and 2. In Romans 1, Paul served notice to the Gentiles. He indicted them for their sin. And then in chapter 2, it was the turn of the Jewish people. Paul pointed out, the sins that were dominant amongst them. And now he knows he's going to receive objections. There are going to be people who hear this letter read in the church in Rome, and they're going to scoff, and they're going to him and ha, and they're going to be those in their families or acquaintances that will start objecting to what has been taught. And so we have him go into this third chapter. And I think it is very important to understand Uh, what he's dealing with. Otherwise, a chapter can be very confusing. It is difficult, and it could be more difficult if if we don't understand, well, why is he asking these questions? What's what's bringing this about? Well, you cannot attack someone's uh, religious beliefs, rituals, especially when they're misguided without facing a fierce protest from them. And he has been going at uh, the heathen and, of course, the Judaizers, as well as those who just uh, would not receive from their own scriptures, the Messiah. So, verse 1, we go right to, he says, What advantage, then, has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? This is hypophora. It's a form of, or a method of uh, in speaking, asking a question, then answering the question. It is a very good way to uh, instruct someone. And uh, so he launches this Q&A. Again, it's not out of thin air. It's because he knows what's, what's going to happen. He knows there are going to be those that will come along with their philosophical, philosophical gibberish and start going at the Christians. We, we have to deal with this ourselves sometimes. So here he is in Corinth. Writing to Rome. Well, Corinth is only about 40 miles from Athens, the home of the 
philosophical blowhards. We read about that in Acts chapter 17 when Paul tried to minister there amongst the Athenians. They were, uh, there was an infestation of idols there and also existentialism. Uh, philosophical gibberish, Acts chapter 17, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So Luke, a physician, an educated man, understood the difference between education and arrogance. And he points these things out. Well, Paul understood too. And he is looking to protect the church, the believers. So what is the benefit and usefulness of the Old Testament scriptures if Gentiles can be saved without becoming Jews? That's one of the questions that he is bringing up because he knows they're going to hear it. Well, God was teaching the Jews, that advantages are not monopolies. Just because you have an advantage doesn't mean that you know, you're foolproof. It is a head start, though. And it is to be used as a tool to serve God. And many of the Jews did just that. Many more did not. So God did not choose the Jews that he might reject the Gentiles. It's a very complicated thing, humanity. Because of what sin has done to us all. But God lets us know he's in control of these things. So the Jews were chosen to be agents of God. Through which he would reach all peoples. Well it eventually worked. It started at Pentecost. But it was, um, it was a bumpy ride. It did not happen uh, in the ideal way. He continues here in verse 1, or what is the profit of circumcision? Now, that encompasses the entire, uh, you know, the Judaism, the Sabbath, the diets, but circumcision is a big part of that covenant system. He's going to deal with this uh, in, through chapter 4. So looking ahead to chapter 4 of Romans in, in verse 11, he says, And he, that is Abraham, the patriarch of, of the Jews, and, and of those of the faithful also. He says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So you listen to that, you say, ah, What is he saying? Well, in chapter 4, he's continuing to address primarily the Jews, but it will reach anybody who's guilty of the same uh, attitude against faith. And what he's saying, what I just read, he's saying Abraham was a man of faith. And God recognized that faith. And he took the circumcision as a symbol to distinguish the faithful people from everybody else. It was part of the covenant. But it happened to Abraham... Before he was circumcised. It was his faith that mattered. Not the ritual. And this, for this, Paul was you know, chased around all of the Western civilization. Wherever they could find him. Because he was teaching these very things. That faith is more important than ritual. And he points out 
Abraham. It was his faith, not his ritual, that God honored. Because faith is a very big deal to God. He'll later write to the Hebrews, without faith, it's not possible to please God. You have to trust God to benefit from all that he wants to give. Well, uh, what profit is the circumcision is the question. And he's going to roll out the answer as we move on. Of course, it is an outward sign of the agreement that God has established with the Jewish people. We'll talk a bit about that. It's a precursor to the baptism. You could say that. And however, how is he going to break it to them that it is secondary to faith? They should have figured that out on their own. But they did not. Circumcision, baptism, whatever rite that we engage in is secondary to faith. To believing what God has said. Not any old faith, but faith according to the scriptures. As Jesus said, he who believes in me as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow torrents of living water. So that has to be qualified, and there it is. So, uh, verse 2 now. Much in every way. Now, he's answering, he he makes the question in verse 1, where he says, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? In verse 2, well, a lot. That's his answer, much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Well, the greatest advantage of having, of being born a Jew, was that you were exposed at the earliest stages to the word of God. Now what they did with that. Is another story. And we've been covering that. As we've been moving through. Paul's letter to the Romans. Here's a few examples of those. Who were born into Israel. Had the law of Moses. And then the life of. Samuel the great prophet. And eventually Jesus. There was Korah and Dathan for example. They did not care for the leadership of Moses and Aaron, so they challenged Moses and Aaron. And God had the ground open up and swallow them, and that was the end of Korah and Dathan. And yet, in the mercy of God, he uses the sons of Korah, much later, to write many of the Psalms that we have. The mercy of God. Instead of wiping out the family, he leaves the descendants to figure it out, and many did. Then there was King Saul. Look at the benefits he had under the leadership of Samuel. Judas Iscariot. These are those who trampled the advantage of being born into a society where the word of God was to be upheld. They didn't do the right things with what they had. Now, there were others, of course, that did do the right things. Uh, Joshua, for, for just one, Isaiah, and we can just go on. They were, as a people, perfectly prepared for the work that they failed to do. That should hit us right between the eyes, because we are not saying, well, the Jews messed up, but we, the church, we got our act together. We are not saying that. What we are saying is if they can drop the ball, we can too. If some of those Jews could get it right, we can too. So this is very much relevant to all of us today. Again, I'm going to repeat that. They were perfectly prepared for the work they failed to do. 
Isaiah the prophet. He is the one that says this, Isaiah 42, verse 19. Who is blind but my servant? He's talking about Israel. Or deaf as my messenger, whom I sent. Who is blind as he who is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant? It's not a compliment. He's saying right there, my, my servant Israel was to bring the light of my truths to all the peoples of the world. But they preferred idolatry. They preferred other things. They thought they were perfect, but they were blind. What's a New Testament? Who's the New Testament example of that? Well, Saul of Tarsus. He thought he was perfect and he was persecuting those who loved the Messiah that he should have recognized according to the scriptures, and he missed it. Of course, Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. He sort of detached himself from his past life and embraced his new life in Christ and took on the name Paul. There was no excuse for, the, for their failure, the Jewish people, because they had the word, they had the oracles of God. And as I mentioned, there's none for the church. Added to the list of things about Israel that are distinct, and there is a list, and not just one thing that made Israel the chosen people, is God's protection. Again, Isaiah 43 this time. <clears throat> For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Those nations did not receive the protection that Israel received. That's the point. Deuteronomy 4. <clears throat> did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of fire? As you have and lived? God early on is telling the Jewish people, you are in a privileged position. To whomsoever much is given, much is required. What are you going to do with this? And again, many did the right thing. Daniel the prophet. You know, get higher than that amongst men. You get Daniel the prophet and you have another prophet, Ezekiel, talking about how great Daniel was. It's exciting stuff if you are a believer of Jesus Christ and a lover of his word. If you're, witness, if you're watching or you're here and you're not a believer... These scriptures are appealing to you. They're not a, not, I don't mean appealing to you like uh, I like them, but I mean they are, they are talking to you. They're inviting you. They're saying, come, let's reason. Your sins are red as scarlet. Make no mistake about it. God wants to deal with it, but you will not dictate the terms of how God deals with this. He will do that, and he will do it with blood, and it will be his own blood. The blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. So this should be a big deal. No nation has ever had so many prophecies and promises about its present and its future as Israel. Not even close. Jesus said, by the mouth of his holy prophets. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. Actually, that's, that's not Jesus speaking, but it's in the Gospel of Luke. So I should get some credit, nonetheless. Anyway, uh, that is a fact. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began. Abel was considered a prophet. Enoch was a prophet. Noah, a prophet, is not only one who may be able to tell the future, uh, according to God's revelation. A prophet is one who speaks God's word. 
who walks with the Lord. And Enoch walked with God and he was no more. For God took him. So this should have given the Jews an assurance uh, that God is with them, will be with them to the end. And it should have the same effect today, but it does not amongst many of them. Look at the ones that do come to Christ, however, they get it, hopefully. And uh, what is expected of them, of the Jewish people? Well, that they would embrace and understand the scripture, the oracles that have been entrusted to them. Jesus, again, I've quoted this one several times, my last few times on Sunday teachings through, through Romans. Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And as I've hopefully been consistent in making the comment, when he made that statement, he wiped out every other religion of man on earth. Salvation is of the Jews. It comes through our Old Testament into our New Testament. Jesus was a Jew. He came as a Jew. And the Christian faith was born out of the Jewish religion. And I don't know how you can be a Christian and be against the Jewish people. Uh, if, you're, if, you are, if you say you're a Christian and you've got problems with the Jewish people, you need to come talk to me after service so I can set you straight. With love. I mean that. Um, and I've come across people who have claimed to be Christians and against Israel. Uh, I don't know how you can do that with a straight face, except Satan's messing with your head. Well, after Pentecost, God, God began to speak not through the Jew, but he began to speak through the Gentiles also. It was a slower process, but it happened. Imagine if the Messiah bypassed Israel and all her prophecies and went to the Eskimo people. It would have all been lost. It would have made no sense. It would just have evaporated. But he did not do that. He went to the people who were prepared to receive him from centuries before, the Jewish people. It all made sense. It all connects to this very day. It is systematic revelation. Uh, just, and just think about, you read Numbers, and when God was sending the spies into the promised land, their mission was to spy out the land, not to come back and give their opinion. And for that opinion that they did give, God judged them and they died. Uh, I may get to that. Uh, but uh, coming back to it, when God said, told Moses by name who to send into the promised land, he mentioned the men and their fathers. You see, the Jews were paying attention to their genealogy. Whether they knew it or not, the time would come when another Jew named Matthew would take this genealogy that they were careful to maintain and he would demonstrate that Jesus Christ has all the rights to the throne of David as the Messiah, as the scriptures have taught. And that's Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses that you might want to skip over when you're reading. But if you don't and you look into it, you'll find it has a treasure of fulfilled prophecy within it. These things are not by chance. Your Bible is absolutely trustworthy. I don't care what Satan says to, says to you. You can trust God's word. But it doesn't mean it's going to insulate you from suffering and unfairness and your own flesh in this life. But in the next life, you won't have to put up with any of this junk. Anyway, uh, for 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, if, if you wanted to know about God, the true God, the Messiah to come, you had to 
ask a Jew. But that, of course, Pentecost moved away from that. Now, um, actually, I said for 2000, maybe I need another vacation. Uh, in the last 2000 years, if you want to know about the Jewish Messiah, you usually have to ask a Gentile. Things have reversed. Prior to that, if you wanted to know about the God of creation, you had to ask a Jew. And so, you know, we see the work of the Lord taking place, and it has all been mapped out for us in God's word. So, for me as a Christian, I can be educated in the scripture and remain a fool, or I can be educated in the scripture and become a tool. That is what was available to the Jew that was raised in a society where the scripture was everywhere, where teachings on the scripture were everywhere, but it was lost on some, but not all. They could, uh, like you take King Saul, uh, he was educated in the scripture, but he remained a fool. He even said, I have played the fool. It was an understatement. Or you can be like David, who was, an edu- who was also educated, but what a tool of God. We were just singing, again, a song that was penned by David after a catastrophe that he brought upon himself. The grace and the mercy of God. Well, we still have a lot more to discuss here. He he mentions oracles of God. That Greek word for oracles is from another Greek word that we all know, logos. It is the word of God. And that's what Paul is saying, because entrusted to them were God's words. And nobody else got it like them. Within those words, we find the only way to God, to salvation, and to purpose. I don't know if i got enough time to reference Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. um, Romans 9, verse 4. Speaking of the Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who was over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Tell the Jehovah Witnesses to stick that in their pipe and smoke it, because there it says Christ is God. There's no way to undo that unless you lie. Uh, but that that's there's more to that verse. He's bringing out as he's preaching to the Jewish people, what he is saying to them, don't go twisting my words to the Galatians against me, thinking that I'm somehow against Abraham and the patriarchs and the law of God. I have just understood who the Messiah is and that he is more important than them all. And again, hopefully I'll I'll come to where they twist his words uh, using what had been in circulation a long time by now, Uh, as he writes this Roman letter uh, from Corinth. Had God, uh, let's not forget what's going on here. Satan's war is against whoever God has chosen to do his work, to be his educated tool. God is against you if you want, um, pardon me, God is is against Satan, but Satan is against those who want to be used by God. Had God chosen, for example, the Polynesian people 
instead of the Jewish people, then the Hamas types would have attacked them. Satan will find someone to attack God's people. But God's people ought to be ready. We ought to be prepared for these things. And we learn this from not only the Christ and the prophets before him, uh, but also from the apostles and many in church history. So now, verse 3, he says, For what if some did not believe? So again, the hypophora, he asks a question, he will answer it. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Well, they were given the scriptures, but uh, just because they did not believe the revelations uh, doesn't make God somehow less God. Man's defects do not reveal any defects in God. What if some did not believe? Well, it's on them. That's what he's going with this. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? This shoots down that um, dominion theology that somehow... God is done with the Jewish people as a race. He's never going to use them again. He's done with them. Well, that's not true. Uh, that's not what the, the Bible teaches at all. Uh, God is faithful, and they cannot, uh, as a people, break the covenant. As individuals, that's a different story, and, and this is what he's pointing out. Israel failed to realize uh, that built within their own sacred writings was a messianic expansion plan. Well, you say, yeah, they should have saw that. Well, let me ask us all a question. Maybe there are people or those of a culture or a class that you, you really detest. You hold them maybe in contempt. Would you bring them the gospel if you were given the chance? Or would you withhold it? I'd like to think all believers, I'd preach to anybody who'd want to hear the gospel of Christ. Well, what was happening with many of the Jews? They didn't want to give anything to the Gentiles. They wanted the Gentiles to go to hell. And, and Paul is bringing this to the surface. If, if, if you're thinking this way and you're reading these things, you're, you're realizing that um, he is not allowing any spiritual arrogance to go without condemnation. It became to the generations of many of the Jews the Gentiles became an unharvested crop. So, here we are in the workplace, in the neighborhood, wherever we find ourselves. We want to make sure we are not guilty of leaving a crop unharvested. And one way to do that is, of course, is to uh, be quiet about your salvation and who you are as a Christian. Another one is to uh, ruin your witness in the face of unbelievers. And so we are hopefully on guard against these things. Um, he, he continues as he moves forward, God is, God is not reduced by unfaithful people. And that applies to those who would like to blame the church or Christians for not receiving Christ. Well, you know, I don't... Uh, how can I become a Christian looking at how you Christians fuss and fight with each other? Well, you non-Christians fuss and fight with each other too. It's just evidence of sin in the world. It's nothing against God. It's totally against Satan and against your fallen nature and my fallen nature. But don't think for one minute that you're going to be able to stand in front of God and say, I would have become a Christian, but I saw some Christians that were messed up, so I ruled you out. Well, those Christians that are messed up, they're going to, God will deal with them. But he's going to deal with you too. 
for your sin. And if you don't have a Savior, it's not going to go well for you. And so we, we come across those people who are eager to excuse themselves from receiving the truth and the prophecies of Scripture by pointing to other Christians who, in their opinion, have failed to be the Christians that they expected them to be. Uh, That's dealt with in other places in Scripture too, but God's going to say to them, I never called you to worship Christians, I called you to worship me. Verse 4, so answering the question in verse 3, for what if some did not believe, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Verse 4, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So, where to begin? This is emphatic. This is forceful. Certainly not. Don't be silly is how we might want to say it. God's covenant with Israel remains, even if they haven't been faithful. Uh, But, again... God never lies. He cannot lie. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. So let God be true and everyone else a liar. Impenitent people will answer for their sin, but God will march forward whatever men are doing. We have that in a song. His truth is marching on. God is moving forward, regardless of what people are doing. But fortunately, there are many people that are responding to what God is doing. Well, Jesus said, I came for the sick. The physician came to deal with the sick, which is all of us, but some don't want to admit that they are sick. And so they cannot be helped by the physician. They will not benefit from the gospel. And so part of our evangelism involves pointing out to an individual, you are not all that. There are things about you that from a holy God's perspective are detestable, contemptible. Why should he let you in heaven? And I don't know how anybody can honestly say, well, you know, actually God should let me in heaven because I am all that. Uh, That would be laughable and that would be easy to pick apart. Because you could say to that person, well, by your answer that you just gave me, if I don't like you and I don't by your answer, don't expect God to like you. Did I make that clear? Uh, there are things that we do as people that God does not like. And uh, he addresses all of it in his word. But the unbeliever tends not to read the word of God. But they can read us. We can become that letter written to them, that agent of God, through our time and understanding of the word. So if you get nothing else out of this morning's consideration, may you get this part. Paul is dealing with those who object to the gospel and have all of these clever arguments, and he's holding them accountable and saying, with all of your arguments, you cannot get away from accountability to a holy God. And he'll go on, and as he goes through this chapter, we won't get it this morning, he'll go on to point out your sinners. And the only way to deal with that sin is through a Savior, and that is according to God's plan and definition of a Savior, Christ. And so here he says, as it is written, he goes to the Scripture. Certainly not. Let me quote the Bible to you. And he happens to go to a man who wrote this psalm in 
on the heels of a, a terrible sin that he committed. But David knew God forgave him. We can struggle with that. How could God forgive David for what he did? The murder and the, uh, the, the, the adultery. How could God forgive? And, and, and so David received the forgiveness. A man after God's own heart. This is in Psalm 51. And what David is saying when David says, as it is, Paul says, as it is written, and David says, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And so David is saying, God, his wrath is justified. He always gets it right. His words are just and his judgment overcomes those who accuse him of anything. God is innocent all the time. And so David, his psalm shows a surrender and a commitment to stand condemned before God when guilty. Demonstrating in that psalm that, yeah, I sinned and God is right. Whatever whatever judgment he puts on me, he is right. But his mercy overcame the judgment. Where sin abounded, grace did much more, as Paul will write in chapter 3. Uh, man's unrighteousness, it might highlight the goodness of God, and this is what their argument was, but it carries a heavy price sometimes, as it did for David. His sin, David's sin, highlighted the mercy and grace of God. David was forgiven, but the consequences of his actions were bloody. Absalom came against the kingdom. I mean, it was just a a terrible thing. And so God lets man know, I can forgive you, but you better understand, sin is not a toy. You cannot take fire to your heart and not be burned. Can a man take fire to his bosom and not be burned? It's a serious business. This should take away any notion of uh, lawless behavior in Jesus' name is somehow doable. It is not. It's not worth it. And so when men look at the cross of Christ, they should hear the judgment of Christ that they're dead in their sin if they don't receive him. Or they will hear, I have taken away your sin. If they have received him, the choice, again, falls to the individual. This is where Paul is going. This is a condensed uh, uh, overview of where he is going. He's doing this throughout all of the Roman letter. He's dealing with salvation. He's dealing with sin. He's dealing with faithfulness throughout this letter. He is addressing the anticipated objections that will come from men who are otherwise intelligent cannot emphasize that enough. They are otherwise intelligent. But when it comes to God, because of their dishonesty with God, they are spiritual fools. And that is, again, what he's bringing up. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. (laughs) Well, let's take the bottom of that verse uh, first. I speak as a man. He's indicating that he is making a point and not uh, declaring a doctrine. He's saying, uh, uh, hear me out. I'm speaking in the role of someone who is being dishonest and faithless. They would come up with some scenario like this. 
Let's read the scenario again. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say, say then? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? In other words, if I sin and God shows me mercy and that makes God look great, why is he angry with me for sinning? I just helped him look good. You would say, who would say such a dumb thing? Those guys up in Athens. They do it to this day. To this day, we have people that come up with all sorts of hypothetical situations that will never happen. And they present them as though you're faced with this, you better come up with an answer. And it's silly, and I want to zero in on that. If, if my sin shows God's grace, then sin is not bad. That's the illogic. A sinister attempt to... Uh, get rid of logic, actually. Is punishment fair if God is glorified because of it? Yes. That's where Paul is going. Some try to corner us with silly, complex, hypothetical situations, as I mentioned, that will never happen. These are usually pseudo-intelligent, sophisticated arguments that entangle and engross anybody who messes with them. You say, where's this happen? What do you think this whole woke thing is? Can you tell me what a woman is? Now, you, you, you answer me. No, not out loud. Is that person up to no good? Does that even merit an answer? If, if a people smasher just came out of the sky and squashed that person when they asked that question, I bet nobody else would ask that question ever again. They'd say, yeah, that was pretty dumb. Let's move on. But that's not what happened. The geniuses in the universities, and again, not all people in universities are up to no good or, or sinister, but there is a large uh, party of them that are in control, that they have influence, and they are up to no good. And they help these things along. They do all the hauling for Satan they can do because they refuse Christ. In an existential way. And they think that it's a compliment to be an existentialist. Trying to get to the bottom of the existence of man. With all of these philosophical ideas that have no bearing on life. Do nothing for anyone else. Help no one anywhere. You won't find the existentialist working in a soup kitchen. Or scrubbing floors. They're too busy out coming up with questions and reasons to not believe God. And you say, well, who's doing that today? Well, you're familiar with AI, artificial intelligence, which we do not have here. All the intelligence here is real. <laughs> artificial intelligence is man taking all the information he can get from anywhere he can get it and putting it into one spot. And then having you be able to activate that accumulate, accumulation of knowledge. Many of you are reading articles online that are artificially generated. They're not written by someone. They have a name. They may even put a face there, but many of those articles are fake. It's artificial intelligence. Why are they doing this? Well, according to one, one who I actually admire, who is you know, quite a remarkable person, but is in the world of this uh, artificial intelligence, he's saying... 
We want to find our origins, and we want artificial intelligence to give us this answer. Just go to the first page. It's on the first page. But this is not, this is not, uh, it's not complicated enough for them. They need more sophistication. Well, I'd like to take one of them and say, listen, if you can turn the way you think about complex things into defending truth, instead of trying to pursue truths that are already revealed, you would serve humanity a lot better. But that's not what's going on. They are spending billions of dollars to search for the origins of the universe. When we have it right here, you can get it free online. I'm not overplaying this. This is taking place. You can watch it. You can watch them on the internet debate these things. And you want to scream and throw a brick at the television. You morons! What are you talking about? Just go to the scripture. Oh no, we can't do that. If you look up things on the Bible versus existentialism, you just shake your head and say, why do they believe the complex falsities when the simple truth is right there? Is God supposed to excuse this? This is on the Oxford level that these things are happening. Speaking gibberish, but thinking themselves genius. Okay, all right. Has that happened in Paul's day? Other than there in Rome? Yeah, when he's in Greece, he writes to Corinth. He's in Corinth now, writing to the Romans. But at an earlier point, he was in Greece, writing to the Corinthians. And he says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Not of God, not of truth, not of science, but the foolish things of people who will not receive the simple truths of God's revelation. So, in the clash of classes, the underdogs of Christ defeat the overlords of human esteem. You know, this is a complicated section of Scripture. Until you see that he's dealing with people who will not receive the simplicity of truth. He's trying to speak to them in a way, question and answer, that maybe would trigger a response, you know what, he's right. And so the supposed overlords of intelligence scoffed themselves into eternal death. Where are they now, the earlier ones that came up with all of these complex arguments and reject? Where's Sigmund Freud now? Where's Carl Jung now? Where are all these men who did not want people to go to God's word to learn how to fight off the things in life that hound us in our minds? Where are they now? And then where are your Charles Finney's, your Dwight Moody's, your Charles Spurgeon's, men who preached Christ and the Savior and the goodness of God and the holiness, his holiness and eternity? Where are they now? There are real consequences to what's going on here. There are real consequences to their real lives. We must defy their evil without celebrating their doom. We're not happy people are going to hell, but they're going to go to hell. And it'll be on them. And this is what he is saying. Human philosophers tinkering with reason and chasing their tails. And again, the example is we're trying to find the origins of man. Turn to Genesis 1. 
Why won't you believe that? What about Genesis 1 is so repulsive that you must do anything you can to suppress that information in unrighteousness? What is it about Jesus Christ that makes you not want to receive him? Did he steal something from you? Did he uh, you know, uh, try to hurt you? Why are you rejecting? It makes no sense. You say, well, you can say that about other religions. No, I can't, because other religions have told me things that are flat-out lies. Salvation belongs to the Jews. We have an unbroken witness from the book of Genesis to this present day. No one else has got this. Well, anyway, I, I digress. What shall we say then? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And again, he's putting himself in their position with these questions uh, that are from his, his, I'm sure they're from the files of the apostle. He says, you know, I've had to deal with these types before. Up in Athens, there are plenty of them. They have all these existential arguments, all of these sophisticated, convoluted positions that are all dumb. But because they come from otherwise intelligent people, we're supposed to believe them. Well, if you live through COVID, you should know better. You should understand there are A students out there who are pretty stupid and evil. Not all of them. Not all of them. But enough of them. So when Christ says, I'm no respecter of persons, I don't care about your credentials, what can you do that's consistent with God? That's what he's interested in. And that's what Paul is trying to express. Uh, you know, that woke twaddle, it is all gibberish. Every bit of it. And anybody who thinks that, wait a minute, I don't have to tell you what a woman is, dingbat. You know. You know it. And you want to try to t somehow twist up society with questions that make no sense. Anyway, verse 6. He says, certainly not. Uh, you know, don't, don't go coming back to the original question that was in verse 5, out, began in verse 4. Our unrighteousness is that somehow, since it makes God look good, shouldn't we be excused from being judged? And you would say, who would even think that way? Well, who would think about the woke thing? Certainly not. Verse 6. For then, how will God judge the world? Let that sit for a minute. Certainly not. False hopes of men evading accountability is what he has been dealing with. Uh, this silences the gripe that God is too loving to send anyone to hell. He's too loving to let rebels into heaven. That's closer to what's going on. Why should God let people into heaven who hated him here in this life, who ignored him here in this life? Because they're going to do the same thing in the next life. It's who they are. And so he filters them out. And he has every right to do that. And so if you are saved, you want... Look, I have loved ones who aren't saved. And I still love them. But I'm not giving an inch against my faith for them or anybody else. Jesus said, if you love anybody... Anybody more than me, in Luke chapter 14, you got a big problem with me. And so let's be, uh, let's be clear that we're not helping any unbeliever by siding with them against Christ. If you want to help the unbelievers, stand your ground in your faith. Give them the love of Christ and the truth of Christ and reveal the lies of the world. Give it time, give it prayer, and keep working in the meantime, because there are also other souls. 
to be saved. I don't know. Does the New Testament church, do we, does this present day church have a heart for lost souls? Do we have a heart for evangelism? Or are we too busy wanting to know about the future? Or are we too busy wanting to just feel good and worship? All those things are good. But do we have a burden for lost souls? Jesus did. He says the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And to prove how serious he was about it, he let them kill him in public. We should have that attitude. Uh, it's really not that difficult to have. It's just that I want for my neighbor what I want for myself. And what I want for myself is heaven. Um, well, coming back to this, verse 7, where if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged a sinner? So this is uh, the end justifies the means approach. Why am I still a sinner if I've been helping God out? Long as I, you know, we get him to the glory, isn't that the objective? It's the kind of stuff he had to deal with, the kind of stuff we have to deal with also. It is a fatal and false assumption. That man's sin somehow benefits God or anybody else. Uh, we'll open that up a little bit more in a minute. Verse 8. And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come? There's the, the antidote to that argument, because where does that end? Anyway, and why not say, let us do evil, that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So he's saying, you know, people are saying, I'm teaching this stuff. And if I am teaching this stuff, then I am condemned. But I'm not teaching this. I'm not saying that we can do evil so that God can be glorified and everybody's happy after that. Perpetrators want to cancel accountability. They want to find another way to paradise than Jesus Christ. And as long as evil is done to somebody else, sure, let's do evil. That good may come. Well, who are you doing evil to? So you can steal from somebody else so that you can glorify God? But you don't want them to steal from you. Anyway, situational ethics. It undermines virtue. It undermines truth. And where do we have it in Scripture? We have it in Rebecca. Rebecca was a hardworking woman. woman. You know, when, she, when the servant of Abraham came... She watered all his camels. I mean, she was a hard worker. But when it came to something she really wanted for her precious Jacob, I won't say he was a mommy's boy, because he's a tough guy too. But from her perspective, he was a mommy's boy. Well, she wanted that blessing for her favorite son. Well, one of her mistakes, she shouldn't have a favorite child. They're, you all love them equally. And we see the, the, the problems that that creates. Anyway... So what does she do? She creates this scheme using her favorite son to lie to her husband to steal a blessing from God. And it was all problems after that. Sarah did a similar thing. And Abraham allowed it with Hagar. And there we have Ishmael. You take Ishmael, you take Esau, the brother of Jacob, you have the Arab people. There are some other contributors, but essentially that's it. There are no Philistines. There's no such thing. Philistines are gone. There are no Palestinians. They're gone. And they never had all the land anyway. What you're seeing are Arabs pretending to be Philistine descendants and getting away with it because of the hatred towards the Jews that Satan is inflaming. Where did this twisted logic come from to say, Paul, you're teaching uh, that we can live like sinners? 
and still go to heaven. Well, if you take a verse from Galatians where Paul said, For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. They twisted that verse into saying, See, he died to the law. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. And, and somehow that's going to get him grace. This is what Paul is teaching. He was not teaching that. And he says, If I were teaching that, I'd be evil. But I'm not teaching that. And so he's answering these objections. He knows they're coming. And um, just to review this, what advantage has the Jew? The scripture, the Bible, with its instructions, its warnings, its prophetic confirmations, which are critical because those prophetic confirmations are not found anywhere else, certainly not to this degree. And they verify that it doesn't have a human origin. That's what prophetic prophecy is. Will unbelief interfere with God? No. It will interfere with your destination, but not with God. Does the end justify the means? No. Sin is sin. And to think that you can sin to somehow bring good out of that, where does that end? Who gets to call? Who gets to suffer? And will the wicked be judged? Absolutely. That's what he's dealing with in these first eight verses. And then he's going to continue and deal with sin. Well, i got to tell you, when I was preparing for this, I was saying, Lord, I sure would like to be doing the life of David. This is, to me, it's very, it's, 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 on one hand, it's challenging and it's fun because you, you read this as a Christian, you say, who is he talking to? Who even has this kind of conversation? And then you begin to look and say, well, wait, we're having that today, are we not? We have people coming up with outrageous arguments under the guise of intelligence in our universities on why Israel should be pushed into the Mediterranean, on why we can't defend, uh, define gender. I mean, you look at these things and you say, who comes up with this? Well, the one that smells like sulfur. Satan comes up with this. That alone is a platform for you to begin sharing the gospel and ask a person, now come on, seriously think about this. It would take a spiritual, wicked being to try to spread this on humanity. Well, we're going to have communion, but let's close this time of study in God's word with prayer as the men prepare the articles. Father, we look forward to the days when we don't have to discuss doctrine, deal with sin, wrestle with unbelievers, rebuke our own selves for the failures that we find ourselves um, victims of. The time is coming when all these things will be gone. But right now, it is war. Satan's war against your people. Satan's war against everything that is good. Satan using people whom he hates to do his business and on the surface getting away with it. Right now, this is what we face. And yet, you call us to be faithful to the end, to overcome the evil by faith, a faith that produces righteousness and perseverance, a faith that produces love and patience. We, we see these things because you've shown them to us. And we know that you're eager to help us do whatever it is we are called upon to do to your glory. And may you help us every step of the way. 
If you are here this morning and you have not received Christ, your sin is upon you. It cannot be stressed enough. You're the walking dead from heaven's perspective. You don't get a single shot at salvation. You get your lifetime to come to Christ. You have a man like me telling you what you already know, that you're defective, that there are things that are wrong with you. And in the presence of a holy God, they have to be dealt with. But he'll work with you. But it has to be his way. And his way is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. If you want your sin, the penalty for your sin, to be taken away, to be washed away, then you've got to verbalize it. If you say with your mouth and mean it with your heart, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have disobeyed you. I ask you to forgive me. There's no one else who is mighty enough, who is clean enough to take away the penalty that looms over my life. I ask you to forgive me and to this, from this day forward, make me your servant. Be my Savior and be my Lord. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of such a magnificent confession. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.